a very warm welcome to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. Um, it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, who is Kenny Eastwarren from Texas A&M. Um, Kenny's worked on the foundations of probability and decision theory and on the social epistemology of mathematical axioms and proofs. And his current work is exploring some analogies between different possible futures in decisions under uncertainty and different individuals in social choices and different stages of the self in reasoning across time. And his talk today is called A New Method for Value Aggregation. So without further ado, over to you, Kenny, and very warm welcome to you. All right, uh, thanks for having me. I've been very honored to receive this invitation a couple of years ago, and I've been looking forward for a while to the visit to the Aristotelian Society, but uh, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, I couldn't actually physically be there, but uh, uh, I'm glad that we're able to at least make these efforts to continue uh, the session, even though uh, we're dealing with the safety precautions of the pandemic. And one nice bonus is that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of my friends are able to make it to this talk who probably wouldn't have been able to come to the UK. Um, and even though I'm usually, I'm teaching at Texas A&M University, and so I'm usually physically located in the town of Bryan College Station there. Uh, the building behind me is the uh, philosophy department on campus, but I've been, for the past several months, I've been physically located about 90 miles away in Austin. And uh, before I begin with the talk, I just want to acknowledge that both the land that I live on now and the land that I work on in College Station was once the territory of indigenous people who were dispossessed and removed from this land. And I specifically want to acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Tonkawa, Tawakoni, Waco, Sana, Wichita, and Coahuiltecan peoples. And there are likely many others who uh, once inhabited and cared for this land whose names have not been preserved through the uh, intervening history. Okay, so now I will uh, begin my slides. Let's see. Okay, so uh, uh, this talk is on a new method for value aggregation and many different moral theories aggregate value in the sense that they say that uh, what makes an option or a choice or an act or something right or wrong is in some way grounded in the goodness of that act for each individual. And uh, utilitarianism is a uh, particularly prominent example of a sort of aggregate of moral theory, but there are others as well that have this sort of feature. And uh, I'll remain neutral about which sort of aggregative theories I'm talking about, but, uh, and so I'll just use goodness for whatever it is at the individual level that is being aggregated. Some call it utility, some call it something else, uh, uh, but I'll just call it goodness. And one other important point um, is that uh, goodness is aggregated not just across all the individuals that are affected, but also when we're making decisions or choices in the context of uncertainty, where we don't know for sure which outcome will be actual. Uh, we often want to aggregate goodness across these possible outcomes so that it's not just how good the actual outcome is that determines uh, features of the rightness or wrongness of the act, but um, 
but the goodness of the possible outcomes and how likely they were. And formally speaking, the standard sort of methodology for this is to assume that first that we can represent goodness for an individual with a real number that measures their goodness, the goodness, that we can represent the probabilities of different outcomes with real numbers, and then we calculate the overall rightness or wrongness of an act or an option by first summing up the goodness for each individual in the world, and then taking the expected value of that total goodness. And what I'm going to be doing in this talk is proposing a new method that starts in the same way. It starts by assuming that we have some way of measuring goodness for individuals and measuring probability. But uh, I'm not going to be using the specific mathematical calculations of addition and expected value. These will turn out to emerge automatically from the process that I suggest, but I'll, I'll be grounding this in a different way. Okay, and so I'll be beginning with this introduction, and then I will uh, go through some general formal techniques involved in creating an ordering of this type. And these will be the general formal techniques that could be applied in a variety of different ways. Then I'll go through uh, some precise options for how to specify this and give an example of how to do this ordering. It'll, uh, it'll be a sort of toy version of a, an aggregate of moral theory that's built, built using my techniques. But I don't mean to say that this one is the right uh, moral ordering to get from this technique. And then I'll illustrate this example in, uh, in one particular case that involves an infinite population. And if there's time, I'll discuss some of the flexibility and some of the alternatives for how we might specify the ordering. But uh, one important limitation of all of the techniques I'm going to use is that I'm going to assume that there's a fixed population across all of the options and across all of the possible outcomes. Uh, so I won't be able to address questions of population ethics. Uh, but, uh, but hopefully that'll be something that, uh, that I can figure out ways to modify this for in future work. But in the remainder of this introduction, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about why I think the, uh, the particular uh, example uh, that I'm going to look at could, uh, what it illustrates about the, this aggregative theory in particular and about aggregative theories in general. And uh, in particular, why will I be focusing on an infinite population case? And so one motivation for focusing on an infinite population case is that some uh, moral theorists have said, well, we, we need to be able to account in case the world is in fact infinite. And at least one part of the literature, uh, including this, uh, this influential paper by Valentine and Kagan, but also several others uh, around that time, uh, they deal with infinite populations uh, just because they say, um, well, a moral theory needs to be able to account for any sort of possible situation in which we might be facing moral decisions. And since infinite populations are conceptually possible, we need to be able to account for them. And then Nick Bostrom in a slightly later paper, uh, he argues that in fact, it may be that the, uh, the actual world is infinite. He gives a few different motivations for that. He suggests perhaps cosmology tells us that the universe is in fact infinite, and perhaps there are uh, other ways in which many agents occupy our world due to uh, simulations and uh, things like that. Um, 
And uh, he's, he's trying to respond to some of Valentine and Kagan's work by trying to say, Valentine and Kagan just give us an ordering of which outcomes are better and worse than others. And Bostrom says, we need to be able to deal with uncertainty. So he thinks we need more than just an ordering. He thinks we need to represent the goodness of an overall state numerically so that we can then use expected value to, to make these decisions. And I'm going to just be giving an ordering and showing how to accommodate some of Bostrom's worries without using the particular mathematical powerful techniques that he does that depend on the axiom of choice and so on. But another set of motivations for these infinite populations for people who aren't interested in uh, just the mere conceptual possibility or these science fictional possibilities, Mark Johnston um, argues in a series of papers that a naturalist four-dimensionalist metaphysics commits us to the idea that in addition to a person, the, the normal thing that we call a person that has a full life from birth until death, he argues that in fact, if we're four-dimensionalists about what a person is, so that a person is just a sequence of time slices that are attached together uh, in the right sort of way, he says there's also personites, as he calls them, which include just some sequence of the stages of a person, but end before the person's death or begin after the person's birth. And uh, he argues that there's in fact an infinity of these personites and that uh, many decisions we make will harm some of these personites for the benefit of other personites. And uh, since there's infinitely many, he thinks that causes a problem for aggregative moral theories. And I think that there might be reasons to resist some of Johnston's me metaphysical claims about the existence of these personites or perhaps about their normative significance. But even if we are convinced by Johnston that uh, this sort of metaphysics leads to an infinite population of personites whose interests all deserve to be taken into account, I think that my method will be able to accommodate that in some sort of way. But I think the strongest, I mean, at least for me, the strongest motivation for considering these infinite populations, um, it dates back originally to Frank Ramsey's work on the optimal theory of savings, but uh, uh, it comes up very often in economics, both in this discussion of national savings and in the discussion of um, climate change, where decisions that we make now will affect future generations as well as the present generation. And they want to understand how do we take into account the interests of all these generations? And one important point is that they assume that we are not in a situation where any generation knows for sure that it is the last generation to ever live. And so as long as every generation has the possibility of a future generation uh, after it, then uh, we need to consider infinitely many generations in, uh, in evaluating these social policies. And uh, one, strand of this work in economics does this by taking all the infinitely many generations but applying a discount rate to the interests of the future generations. And uh, there are certain economic reasons for doing this, but Ramsey and several of the others point out that, uh, and I think they argue fairly convincingly, that there's no moral justification for this discount rate. And if you don't have a discount rate, then certain economic techniques don't go through. In particular, I'll mention a little bit later, there's certain impossibility results about representing the overall goodness for an infinite sequence of generations with a single real number. Um, and so that's one more motivation for uh, showing that my, my sort of 
aggregative theory can account for these infinite populations without needing to assign a numerical value and can make uh, usable uh, distinctions about which actions or social policies are better or worse than others. Now, I think another more important motivation for my work now is to show why it is that the, the, the mathematical tools that are used in aggregation work. And uh, uh, some of this is uh, asking, so some work in the theory of aggregation asks when or how the numbers of people affected count. And, uh, and I think putting the question that way uh, can lead certain people to wonder, well, numbers, how do numbers matter for morality? Numbers are these abstract entities that don't have, there's nothing good or bad for numbers themselves. And you might think, well, why do these abstract entities matter? And my claim is going to be that it's not the numbers themselves that matter or the mathematical operations of addition, multiplication, and expected value. Rather, my task is to explain why each individual matters each possible outcome for each individual matters. And I want to explain how the numbers can be useful as a tool for figuring out which situations and which options are better for more uh, for the individuals. And so why I want to explain why it looks like the numbers matter. And this is connected to certain nominalistic projects in the philosophy of mathematics. So Hartree Field in particular wanted to show that, uh, that in fact, abstract entities like numbers aren't needed for any sort of physical theory, theorizing. And he's trying to respond to Quine's argument, using that to argue that numbers exist. And whether or not Fields Project succeeds at that, I think it does do something important, which is to show what it, it, it directs us to the question, what are the underlying features of the world that the numbers are representing? And what are the relations among things in the world that the numerical operations are enabling us to, uh, to follow. And uh, some of this work goes back to the work of Krantz, Luce, Supis, and Tversky in the 1970s, where they were, uh, uh, they were, they're mostly psychologists or working in fields near psychology, and uh, they were interested in these questions. There's a project in the mid, in the mid 20th century to try to come up with quantitative representations of various psychological phenomena, things like uh, what is the perceptual scale of loudness or brightness? Because we know that the human hearing system and the human visual system don't react in the, the sort of linear way that you might expect to physical intensities. And they want to know, well, what needs to be the case about the human perceptual system in order to have numerical representations of it? And so they come up with a set of principles for that first applies to uh, paradigmatically quantitative th things like distance or weight, where we have a concept of addition of distances and addition of weights. And they say, what features of distance and of weight need to be the case for addition to make sense? And then they say, we need to figure out parallel things if we want to give a quantitative representation of any psychological property. And so some of what I'm trying to do in this project is do the same thing for the kinds of moral value that utilitarians or other aggregative theorists are doing. I want to explain why does addition and expected value look like it works so well. And uh, in a previous paper, my uh, decision theory without representation theorems, I 
tried to show how uh, how to explain why expected value, why the expected value calculation uh, tells us which acts are preferable to others in a case where we have an act for one individual under uncertainty. And this paper is an extension of that project. It's using many of the same techniques and then extending them to a multi-person case. And I think this also helps us uh, address one particular worry about aggregative theories. And uh, so there's a set of critiques of utilitarianism and other ag aggregative theories that goes under the term of the separateness of persons. And I think there's two versions of this separateness of persons worry. There's at least two versions. Um, one of them, the one that I'm going to respond to, takes says that when you've got an aggregative theory, when you, if you say that what makes an action better than another is that it yields the better total sum of goodness for people, uh, is that some say, this tells us that total sum of goodness is all that matters, and we don't care in any way about the individuals. The individuals are only derivatively uh, relevant insofar as they contribute to that sum. And so they say, this seems to ground morality in, uh, in something bad. It, it, it's grounding it in his impersonal total goodness rather than grounding it in the individuals. And uh, uh, what I'm going to do is that I, uh, my point is that the, the theory that I describe works in the finite case and yields the same comparisons among acts as a theory that says we add goodness and then take expected value. But it also works in the infinite case. And in the infinite case, it turns out there is no such thing as the sum. There is no numerical representation of this sum. And so it can't be in the infinite case that one act is better than another because the sum is higher. Rather, in the infinite case, the only explanation for why one act is better than another is because it's better for the individual people. And in some cases, it's worse for some people, but there's enough better for other people to, uh, 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 to make it uh, better overall. But it's the way it affects individual people that makes it better or worse rather than the sum. And I claim that since this shows that the aggregate goodness is grounded in the individual goodness in the infinite case, I claim that the grounding relation goes in the same direction in the finite case as well. And so this enables the aggregative theory to resist uh, this particular challenge. Now, I think it doesn't resist another version of the separateness of person worries. There's another version that says, uh, because individuals are separate, there is nothing to say to one person to explain why we had to harm them to benefit someone else. And, uh, and I think this version of uh, resistance to aggregative theories just denies the possibility of trade-offs being um, uh, uh, meaningfully more morally justified. And I think uh, there's nothing to I have to say against that, uh, that version of the worry. But I think that version of the worry is just um, uh, I, I think there's nothing that one can say without begging the question against that one, because that just is to deny uh, any sort of aggregative theory. But the main thing I want to say is that uh, the aggregative theory doesn't have to take the aggregate as fundamental. It takes the individuals as fundamental. And aggregates, when they exist and can be represented, are useful tools for deciding which outcome is, which act is better, which outcome is better. But 
it's fundamentally the individuals that matter. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to the, the general formal tools that'll be involved before moving on to the particular versions that I, uh, uh, that I endorse here. Okay, so the, the general formal setting is going to assume that we have some set A of agents. And again, this set of agents will be fixed across all the options and across all the worlds. In the particular example that I'll talk about, the set of agents will be, I'll just represent them with the uh, natural numbers. So they'll have a particular ordering to them, um, but other versions of it could have a different set of agents, but there will be some fixed set of agents. And then there's going to be some fixed set S of states of the world. And these states are just going to represent anything in the world that is independent of the decision or action or option that's being considered. Um, and for those who are familiar with uh, uh, Savage's work in decision theory, I'm considering states the same way that he is, uh, which is uh, uh, that they're the fundamental things that we are uncertain of before choosing one option or another. And an option, that I'll have a set O of options, these options are going to include every function that assigns a real number to each agent state pair. So the idea is that an option will yield some result for each agent in each possible state. And I'm assuming for now that we can represent the goodness of that option for that agent in that state by a real number. And so uh, if we have, if we, if we think there might be a thunderstorm and we have an option that involves distributing umbrellas to certain people, then uh, it may be that some people end up with an umbrella in a world where there is a thunderstorm. Some people end up with an umbrella in a world where there is no thunderstorm. Some people end up with no umbrella in a thunderstorm. Some people end up with no umbrella and no thunderstorm. And uh, uh, each of those outcomes is going to be represented with a real number that says how good it is for that person in that state of the world. And uh, most of these options, since I'm considering every function from that assigns a goodness to every agent in state, since I'm considering every single one of those as an option, most of those options aren't actually options that we have an opportunity to bring about. Uh, there may not even be any physically plausible way to bring about a situation with any particular distribution of goodness among agents. I'm going to need to include them in my overall set of options. Uh, and the idea is going to be, uh, I will be able to say which of these options are equally good as others, which of them are better than others. And by including all of these unperformable options or unavailable options, uh, we'll sometimes be able to compare two available options by saying this option is definitely better than this other thing that isn't actually available. But this other thing that isn't actually available, were it to be available, would be just as good as this third option. And so the first is better than the third because we can make this comparison to the others. But uh, I think the separate question, it's a separate question to say what options are actually available, how can we bring them about, and so on. I'm just going to be developing a comparison over all of them. Um, and uh, one other little formal thing is that if an option is a function that assigns values to agents and states, then if we fix one particular agent and just see 
how does the option affect that agent in each possible state of the world? That sort of mathematical function is one that I'll call a prospect. It's the, the there's going to be a prospect for each agent under a given option that this person faces. Uh, maybe we give this person a lottery ticket and their prospect includes uh, winning a million dollars if that ticket is a winner and uh, nothing otherwise. And there's also going to be formally speaking, another type of function where we fix a particular state of the world and see what the option does for each individual in that state. And that uh, that's what I'll call a world. And um, uh, I think I'm going to accidentally slip into using the word world in a bunch of other cases as well, but I'm going to try to use the word world only for that sort of thing that specifies uh, a definite value for each agent. Um, okay, but I'm going to be talking about these as options rather than acts because of this fact that, uh, uh, that I'm not thinking of them as physically realizable things necessarily. Okay, and then the main thing that I'm going to be doing with these options and also to a lesser extent with prospects and worlds is I'm going to be defining which ones are better than others, which ones are equally good to others. And uh, I'll be doing that with uh, mathematical tools of partial orderings and equivalence relations. And the idea is that a partial ordering, uh, it's ref there's a weak partial ordering, which is like greater than or equal to in that everything is weak uh, is weakly partially better than itself, weakly better than itself. And this weak betterness relation is transitive. And there's also going to be a strict betterness relation that nothing bears to itself, which is also transitive. And equivalence relations will be reflexive, transitive, and symmetric. And the um, a few important things to note is that first, I'm only assuming that these orderings are partial. There will be many pairs that are not related by any of these things. And uh, the idea is going to be that I'll start by defining one, partial, one pair of partial orderings, and then I'll be extending them gradually to encompass comparisons between more and more pairs of options. And uh, at any point in this process, I will have come up with comparisons among some pairs of options, but not others. And for the ones where there is no comparison yet, I leave open whether it may be that at some later stage in the process, we are able to compare these. And now, and it turns out that it was always the case that one of them was better than the other. So, but we just didn't know it yet until we've extended the ordering farther. Or it may be that for some pairs of options, there just is no fact about which is better and they will remain incomparable always. Um, and the fact that I'll allow these orderings to be partial is going to enable me to get around certain impossibility results from uh, the economics literature. And uh, uh, one other thing to note is that one might think that the natural way to think, interpret a weak partial ordering as greater than or equal is that if the weak partial ordering holds, you might think, well, either the strict partial ordering or the equivalence relation must hold. And in my case, there will be uh, pairs of options that are weakly related to each other at one stage in the process. And it may be that at a later stage, we eventually determine that it was strictly better or that it was in fact equal. But at the intermediate stages of my process, which include where I get to by the end, uh, there will be some that are weakly related to each other where we haven't yet determined whether it's strictly or equivalent. Uh, uh, 
And that's going to have a few weird features that I'll point out at a few points. Okay, and uh, the uh, uh, I'm going to start by taking some relations on individual goodness as given. I'm going to, in fact, assume that individual goodness can be represented by real numbers. And then using that, I will define relations, these partial orderings and equivalence relations on options and also prospects and worlds. And I'm going to start in particular with two partial orderings that I'm going to call option dominance uh, that, uh, 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 that say, one act is better than another if it's better for every person in every state. And then I will gradually come up with various new equivalence relations and sort of attach that equivalence relation to the existing partial ordering. And the idea will be, if my initial ordering says that A is better than B, and then my new equivalence relation says that B is equally good as C, then my new partial ordering will say A is better than C. And so that's the that's the method that I used in my earlier paper, and it's the method I'm going to use in this new paper uh, to generate new partial orderings from an old partial ordering and an equivalence relation. And the idea will be that if at any point uh, I make a strict comparison between two acts, then that strict comparison will remain at all future stages. No, uh, no strict comparison will ever be contradicted. It'll never become equivalence or reverse. And so any, any judgment that one of my intermediate partial orderings makes will remain no matter how we extend the theory. It's just that when we don't have a judgment, when there's incomparability, they may eventually become comparable. And so uh, incomparability may just be epistemic or it may be um, fundamental. And the important thing is I'm not going to attempt to give numerical values to these options. If I were to give numerical values to options, well, numbers are linearly ordered. For any two numbers, either one is larger than the other or they're equal. And so if I were to give numerical values to these things, then I would not have this possibility of partial ordering. And there are various motivations that people have given for using numerical uh, values. And I'm going to show how to accommodate those features in other ways. And so some of this work is intended to provide an alternative to the method of social welfare functions in economics, which do just presuppose that there's a way to numerically represent the overall goodness of an act. Okay, and then one last uh, bit of uh, mathematical terminology, which uh, for some of you, if you've st studied any abstract algebra, this will be familiar. And if you haven't, don't worry about this. Uh, but the idea is that the particular equivalence relations that I develop will be based on what are called transformation groups. And the idea is that I'll come up with some concept of a way to transform options into other options. And this transformation should induce a function that any transformation should be able to take any option and yield another option. And, uh, uh, and the idea will be, I will come up with certain ways of transforming options where I say such a transformation always turns an option into another option that is equally good. And so that'll define implicitly an equivalence relation. And the important formal features are just that uh, any particular transformation is going to be one-to-one -one total and onto. That is for every option, we can apply this transformation to it to get another option. No two options get transformed into the same option. And every option is the output of this uh, transformation on some other input. 
furthermore, for any transformation, the inverse of that transformation will also be in the group and the composition of any two transformations will also be a relevant transformation. And then I'll say that um, this transformation group commutes with uh, one of the relations that I already have if, uh, if we can take two options that are already related and transform both of them, then the new options will still be related in the same way. And I'll say that one of these transformation groups is incompatible with a strict relation if it can transform something into another option that is strictly worse than it or is strictly better than it. And so I'll always avoid any transformations uh, that have that feature. And so that compatibility is going to constrain some of how I choose the equivalence relations and the comparison relations. Okay, and so I'm now going to start with this particular minimal ordering of dominance that represents cases where one option is clearly at least as good as another or clearly better than another. I'm going to find certain transformation groups that are plausible equivalence relations prove that they commute with these original relations and are compatible with them and with each other. And then I'll define new partial orderings by saying one option is better than another if it's better than something that can be transformed into the other by these two methods. Okay, so the initial ordering that I'm going to begin with, um, I'm going to have a weak partial ordering of dominance that is just straightforwardly defined where I say one option is better than another or one option is at least as good as another if it's at least as good for every person in every possible state. Um, and so if, if there's no possibility for anyone ending up better off under option two than under option one, then option one is at least as good as option two. Now the strict ordering I start with is going to be very strict, stricter than you might have initially expected. And I'll explain why in a minute. But the idea will be that one option is strictly better than another under my ordering, if and only if there's an epsilon such that everyone is at least epsilon better off in every state under the first option than the other. And uh, you might have uh, wanted to just say one option is strictly better than another if it's strictly better for every person in every state. Uh, and another even weaker op uh, uh, comparison that you might have wanted is to say uh, one option is strictly better than another if it's at least as good for every person in every state and there's at least one person in one state that it's strictly better for. And it turns out that if I started with either of these two stricter uh, uh, either of these two sort of more generous strict comparisons, then uh, the particular um, transformation groups that I come up with would not have been compatible with these stricter ones. And uh, so I think that's, that is a criticism of the particular transformation groups that I look at. But uh, for now, one way to think about this is just to say that, um, uh, that this strict comparison relation that I'm com considering means that one option is much better than another. When there's an infinite population and everyone is, uh, if there's a specific amount that everyone is better off under the first option than under the second, then that means there's an infinite amount of goodness that's uh, out there uh, that, that makes it better. 
Uh, and so the equivalence relations, it's going to turn out, um, might be better interpreted as not being exactly equally good, but the equivalence relations could be almost equally good, while this strict ordering is much better. And it's going to turn out that this is sufficient to address some of the cases that I was looking at. But I think um, another way to think about this is just to say, I'm showing that these ordering, these particular orderings work in particular infinite situations. And that's, that the, the formal possibility of that is enough to, um, I think, motivate some of what I was doing, what, I, what I'm suggesting earlier, that even if we only actually care about the finite cases, in the finite cases, we don't have to worry about these particular uh, troublesome issues that I'm going to mention. And uh, the point is, because it can extend in a consistent way to the infinite case, that's going to help us understand what are the grounding relations among these different uh, pieces of the theory, uh, even if we don't think that this, this particular uh, toy example of an ordering for the infinite case is the one that is morally appropriate. Okay, so now that I've mentioned the uh, dominance relation and this weirdness that I'm re requiring epsilon dominance, now I can give the equivalence relations, the transformation groups that uh, motivate them. Okay, so the first transformation group is going to involve shifting uh, goodness between persons. And so this first transformation is going to assume that there is a given ordering of the persons. And this is obviously problematic. I guess in the case of, um, uh, in the economic case, where we're motivated by the sequence of generations over time. Maybe there is a good ordering there, but in many other cases, there isn't obviously a good ordering. However, the, um, uh, this dependence on an ordering uh, appears in some of the other uh, theories that exist out there, like the Valentine and Kagan one, and in Bostrom's and in Arsenius's. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there may be alternatives to this, uh, to using this ordering, but this is just one candidate way to make this work. Uh, so the particular uh, ordering I'm going to consider is going to, so I just first assume that we can think of the people in order from left to right. And let's consider this possible world where the first person has one unit of goodness, the second person has two units of goodness, the third person has six units of goodness. So we have, I've got the numbers up top and I'm demonstrating this a bit more uh, visually down below. And the idea is going to be, we choose some set of people and, and then choose some distance to shift utility over to one side. And so I'm going to say, let's take every third person and shift one unit of their utility one person to the left. So uh, I, I'm going to say this world is equally good to this world. Uh, and the idea is that I've said, consider some set of people and some other equivalent set of people, in this case, the people all immediately to their left, and take an equivalent amount of utility away from one set and give it to the people in the other set. And we can do this again this time shifting two units to the left. And uh, then we show that we could transform that original situation with one, two, six, four, five, nine, seven, eight, twelve into two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And so the claim is 
that my particular person shift transformation is going to say that these different worlds are equivalent. And similarly, any uh, options that differ only in the replacement of one of these worlds by another one such world is going to be equivalent. And uh, in the written version of this, I prove various formal results. And, uh, and so I show this, is, this commutes with and is compatible with the dominance relations. Uh, if the set, uh, yeah, so it commutes with all of these relations pretty clearly. To prove that it's compatible with the epsilon dominance relation takes a little bit of work, but I can do that. And if the population is finite, then it turns out this particular method of taking some set of people and shifting in a certain direction is equivalent, is going to yield that if we combine dominance with this person shift, then the ordering we get on finite worlds is going to be equivalent to the ordering that we would get if we summed up the utilities of the people and just used that as a numerical representation of a finite world. And the idea is I'm going to claim addition is justified in the finite case because it yields the same comparisons as this person shift uh, transformation. And so I claim the equivalent, the fact that this person shift transformation is an equivalence, that is more fundamental than the use of addition. And, uh, and that this person shift equivalence is what we are committed to when we are committed to using additivity in finite cases. But the important thing is that in the infinite situation, uh, this person shift yields a consistent set of results, even though there is no such thing as the total sum. And so uh, that's, that's how we explain that it's, it's not because the sum is higher that the one is better. It's rather because it can be transformed into something that is dominant by just a few of these, a finite number of person shifts that it's better. And that the sum is just a tool we can use to identify that without having to go through the process of figuring out which shifts there are. Now, of course, there's some problems with this method. First, it depends on the particular ordering of the persons. And, uh, uh, and so the idea is that I'm, I'm using the ordering of the persons to say when two sets of persons are equal. Uh, uh, it's there, we start with just the idea that any one person is equal to any other person. So that a trade-off between any one person and one person of the same amount of goodness is an equivalence. But in order to do the, some of the meaningful things in these infinite cases, I have to allow for certain sets, infinite sets of persons to be equal to other infinite sets of persons. And uh, as uh, 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 there's, a bunch of work on this. Adam Jonsson has proved some results that, uh, that we can't just uh, use the cardinality of an infinite set to say when they're equal. We need something stricter than that. This ordering is one particular way to do this that is consistent. It may not be obviously the, uh, the best one, but uh, uh, I think it'll be interesting to look up alternatives. The other odd feature of this person shift uh, transformation is that it's not compatible with some of the stronger dominance relations that we would have liked to use. And so I'll demonstrate that in a moment, that uh, if in this case we started with just some set of persons and their goodnesses, and we took uh, utility from, we considered the set of people every third person, 
And instead of shifting one person over or two persons over, we shift three persons over. Then what's going to happen is all the people in that original set, they lose a unit of utility, but also gain one. So they end up equally good. And one person at the bottom ends up with one extra unit. And so uh, we end up with a situation in which one person is better off and no one is worse off. And yet I'm saying these two are equivalent under this person shift transformation. And so this is not compatible with the strictest dominance relation that we would like to use. And so this is why I'm saying we might naturally interpret this transformation group as not telling us when two situations are in fact equal, but just when they are approximately equal or up to some finite amount, while the stricter dominance relation I'm looking at tells us when one situation is infinitely better than another. Uh, but anyway, this is, this is the sort of thing that I would like to be able to fix in future versions of this. But again, for most of my purposes, all that matters is that something consistent is possible here, and it's not too implausible. And I'm not committed to this being the particular uh, transformation group that we ought to use. OK, so now the next transformation group will show how to aggregate across possible states instead of across persons. So let's consider an option like this where there's two possible states of the world. Say that we're making some gamble. If heads comes up, then the first person has two units, the second person has three, the next person has four, and so on. Whereas if tails comes up, then everyone only gets one unit of goodness. And the idea is, if heads and tails are equally likely, if the probability of these two states is the same, then another option that would be equally good as this one is one where we just take two units of utility away from everyone in the heads world and give it to everyone in the tails world. Uh, so these are just, uh, we're taking away utility from people in one set of states and giving it in another set of states. And as long as it's the same amount of goodness and the same probability of states, then, uh, uh, then it's OK. And the official definition is going to consider not just shifting between one state and another state, but between a set of states and another set of states of the same probability. And it doesn't have to apply to every agent. It could apply to just some set of the agents. Um, and this particular world shift, again, commutes with all the sorts of dominance. And it's provably compatible with epsilon dominance. And this one is, uh, again, it's going to be incompatible with the strictest dominance if there can be sets of states that have zero probability. And much of my other work in the foundations of probability is about dealing with situations where uh, possible events have zero probability. That's basically unavoidable if we are dealing with uh, 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 infinite sets of possibilities, like if we're picking a real number uniformly at random or uh, throwing a dart at a dartboard in a continuous spatial universe. But as long as our probability function is countably additive, this is going, we don't need the epsilon. It can be compatible with just the straightforward strict dominance. And as long as there are no zero probability events, it can in fact be uh, compatible with the strictest dominance relation. And in my earlier paper, I showed that this particular world shift idea is 
again, sufficient to generate expected value. That is, if one option has a higher expected value than another, then there is a sequence of world shifts that transforms the first into something that strictly dominates the second. And so the idea is expected value is a calculation that is justified because if there's a difference in expected values, then that tells us there must be some set of trade-offs that turns the one into something that's strictly better than the other. But the idea is it's better because it's equivalent under these trade-offs to something that dominates, not because the expected value calculation told us this. And in that earlier paper, I also showed that um, this uh, uh, enables us to make meaningful comparisons among certain gambles that don't have expected values, either because they're like the St. Petersburg game, where we have infinite expectations, and or they're like uh, Alan Hayek's Pasadena game, where there is no expected value, but we can still make meaningful comparisons using this method. All right. Um, and now I'm going to show how, the, with these two transformation groups, we can deal with a particular infinite example that um, uh, that Bostrom raises as a challenge to Valentine and Kagan and various others. So Bostrom tells us to consider this pair of options. So he says, uh, first, let's consider these worlds. If we imagine that we knew for sure that the first person would have three units, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so on, he says, Valentine and Kagan allow us to say that that particular outcome, that the, the heads world under option one here, is strictly better than the world that is guaranteed to result from option two. One, two, six, four, five, nine, seven, eight, twelve. Um, Valentine and Kagan show that this one is better than that one. And they also show that this lower one, the one, two, six, four, five, nine, seven, eight, twelve, is better than the outcome in which every person has one unit of goodness. But Bostrom says, because Valentine and Kagan only give us a partial ordering, they don't enable us to decide, well, what if we have uncertainty? If we have one option that has a chance of the best outcome and a chance of the worst outcome versus another option that guarantees us the middling outcome, uh, Bostrom says, we need to use the mathematics of expected value in order to be able to decide between these. And what I'm going to show is this theory that I developed that only uses partial orderings is going to be able to decide between these options. And it'll decide in the same way that Bostrom recommends. But I'm not going to use Bostrom's technique where he, he does an infinite aggregation that uses the axiom of choice to come up with a hyperreal value for a world. And then he uses expected value to compare them. And Arnsenius does a similar thing in an opposite order. But uh, I'm not going to need the axiom of choice. I'm not going to need numbers. I'm not going to need the expected value. I'm just going to be able to show there's a sequence of transformations we can do to option one and to option two that ends up with option two being better for every person in every state. And so first, we're going to do a person shift on option two. And these are, in fact, the person shifts I demonstrated first. Take every third person, move one unit to the left. Then again, take every third person and move another unit two people to the left. And now we've got an option that is uh, easy. We can see now that this option is worse than the heads world of option one and better than the tails world of option one. 
but we can't yet compare it to option one with its uncertainty. And so first I'm going to do a world shift on option one, take uh, two units away from every person in the heads world and give them to the people in the tails world. And then now we've almost got strict dominance. We can see that uh, option two is strictly better for every person in every state, except for the first two people in the tails world. And so then I will just do another person shift and move two units of utility from those two people to two other people. And uh, now this resulting set of options is going to be a set of options where uh, every single person is strictly better off in every single state of the world under option two than under option one. And so that means under my method, we can see option two is better than option one. And, uh, uh, and I didn't do a calculation of a sum. There is no infinite sum here. I didn't do an operation of expected value. Um, uh, I just did these transformations and uh, I proved these theorems in the written version that show that these transformations can never allow us to get anything inconsistent. They'll always yield some consistent set of preferences and there's no way to get a contradiction uh, using these principles. Okay, so here's how it uh, uh, deals with the ideas mentioned earlier. So I think it's got some advantages over the Bostrom and Arnsenius methods. So Bostrom and Arnsenius both do something where they use the axiom of choice to give hyperreal values. And uh, in some of my other work, um, my paper on regularity and hyperreal probabilities, I give a bit of an argument where for why I think the axiom of choice couldn't be relevant to any anything that should be normatively, normatively significant for physical beings like us. Uh, and so I don't need to use anything like that. And that's partly because I am doing a uh, merely a partial ordering rather than a total order. And uh, in fact, there's some uh, results by economists like Basu and Mitra have um, this result where they show any total ordering, or I guess they show in order to prove that there exists a total ordering that respects strict dominance and uh, uh, equivalence between individuals, uh, you're going to need the axiom of choice to construct a total ordering that represents that respects that. And I don't need the axiom of choice because I'm only constructing a partial ordering. Uh, and another feature that I like about this is that I am aggregating across persons and aggregating across states in a similar way. In both cases, I'm saying we take utility away from one set and give it to another set that is equal in some sense. And equality is determined in the set of states by probability and in the set of agents by this particular feature of their ordering, which is an unfortunate uh, dependence, but it's the same dependence that everyone else who's addressed this problem has. Another feature is that, again, I say, uh, this is just grounding the betterness in the dominance and trade-offs. It's not grounding it in any particular mathematical operations like addition or expected value. And so it's going to, it's going to show us in some sense what these numbers and these operations mean. It justifies these operations instead of just taking them for granted. 
and uh, uh, and then one for the separateness of persons worry, I say, because this is able to work in the infinite case, and in the infinite case, there is no such thing as this numerical aggregate, uh, then it's showing it's not that the individuals matter because of their contribution to the aggregate. It's that the individuals matter because they matter. And uh, the aggregate is just our way of figuring out when are the trade-offs among individuals uh, such that overall things are better, e things are enough better for enough more people to make this better off. Uh, the individual value explains why the aggregate matters. And, uh, and in fact, there is no total ordering that, uh, uh, that, that this can be seen as um, sort of a reflection of. Um, and I think this is uh, also addressing, uh, there's a similar worry one might have about why does expected value matter? In some sense, we should think all that actually matters is what actually happens. And we might think, why do these other possible worlds, why do trade-offs with alternate possibilities uh, tell us that one option should be preferred to another? And uh, I'm saying, in a sense, it's because each possible outcome matters. And the expected value is just summarizing how these trade-offs among these possibilities uh, work out. But again, if there, there might be some reason to think that possibilities other than the actual one don't matter in the same way as the actual one, which one might not want to say about how persons other than myself don't matter in the same way that I matter. I don't know, this is a, I think this is a, an, an interesting parallel to consider in future work. And uh, I've got a few more slides, but I think uh, I'll just leave those to the questions if uh, anything comes up and just stop here. All right, so thanks. <laughs>